Grab your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah 5. And uh, we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah as a whole, which you'll read through it in detail uh, this, this upcoming week. And um, we want to finish out where, where it is that, that we left off. So how about we read just the first few verses, and because of the extent of what we're looking at, we won't be doing exposition. So just read it a little bit, and we'll be making references here and there throughout. So stand with me, and we'll read the first few verses of Nehemiah 5. The writer of Nehemiah writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we always ask as we gather with our Bibles open that you would um, open our entire being, that we may receive, believe, and apply your word. We ask that you would do that tonight. What a, what a wonderful book that I confess I often neglect in Nehemiah. Um, may we be found faithful, and may you raise up Nehemiahs uh, in our day and time today. May it increase so you can increase. Neighbor, son, we pray. Amen. We said Wednesday that for many, when trying to find an application for the book of Nehemiah, they, the, the easy option is to look at Nehemiah as a model for leadership. And I do think there is some truth to that. Um, if you're looking for a single book uh, about what does a leader look like and how does, how does, how does he lead, um, Nehemiah would certainly be a great resource for you. Uh, there are others as well, but uh, certainly Nehemiah would, would, would be there. And you can Google plenty of sermons that, that do that or even books that, that trace that argument. What I want us to do is, is to look at Nehemiah as a man as a godly man, called to fulfill a specific task. Um, and I think it's clear that the Lord used him mightily. Just, for, just to recap what it is we saw Wednesday. In chapter 1, we, we saw that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. Remember, he receives word from the Jews that uh, the early uh, uh, remnant of those in, in Israel, particularly Jerusalem, were suffering. Uh, they had no wall. They had no temple, whatnot. And so he, he bypasses the king, and he goes to the king of kings. He prays. And you remember that he offers a prayer of lament, a prayer of repentance, uh, both uh, uh, corporate and personal, uh, a prayer of confession. And then in chapter 2 and, and on into chapter 3, we, we see his calling. This is where Nehemiah uh, takes steps to uh, quit his job, essentially, and go down to Israel to help them rebuild. And what we see there is that Nehemiah is given a a, a, a if, if you will, a secular calling. That is, he is to lead men to, uh, through construction, right? He's, he's, he's a construction worker, supervisor, if you will. But as we see in Nehemiah, that, that, that sacred role or that secular role is a sacred calling. And that we as, as Baptists and Protestants, we, we, we don't separate the sacred from the secular. That regardless of where the Lord has us, that is a sacred calling, and then the third thing we saw was uh, Nehemiah's perseverance. And we, we say this from chapter 4 to 6. We'll see that's not entirely accurate. 
but Nehemiah came under a severe scrutiny, and they used ridicule, they used slander, uh, they used threats of violence, and Nehemiah always responded by uh, staying on task, um, and, um, and he would often pray in response, particularly when it came to slander. Um, and by the end, he gets the wall built. We're right in the middle of this section about uh, perseverance, and he comes under assault. Um, we get chapter 5, which really sticks out, right? And so, so what we are to see then is in chapter 4, uh, you, you, you get his enemies are, are accusing him. They are uh, threatening him. And in chapter 6, they return and they're throwing slander. But right in the middle, we see that the enemies of Nehemiah, if we could use that term, aren't from the outside. It's from the inside. It's not among the Gentiles, the pagans who feel threatened by an empowered Israel. It's from those inside Israel itself. So we see injustice from the outside. Now we see injustice from uh, the inside. Um, And what it is we have here in chapter 5 is that economic depression often attracts wicked schemers. It often attracts wicked schemers. After all, if you have the means and uh, maybe you own land, maybe you have some extra wealth or whatever, and you see people are suffering, you can loan money or loan property or hire people on. And if they're desperate enough, they're willing to do a lot for very little. They're willing to take a lot of risk for immediate uh, needs to, to be met. And, and so schemers can come in and they can take advantage of that. And this is across the board throughout history. Whatever there is, an economic depression, which you have are people wanting to take advantage of. And there is a recent example of this. I was surprised when on Twitter I found that our current Kentucky attorney general uh, is warning consumers, this is a headline, against scams regarding baby formula. Baby formula. Now, I don't know what those scams are like. I, I, I don't, and I'm not going to take the time to, to read all of that. But what sort of person would take advantage of families with babies in desperate need of food? I mean, that is a low person. Um, and I do get phone calls and texts and direct messages saying, you know, will you pray for us because we've already been to three or four stores and we're traveling across to another county in hopes that there is formula there, right? And, and this, is, this is a terrible situation beyond red and blue, terrible situation. But to, the, but to see that as an opportunity to, to gain an economic advantage over your neighbor is, is wicked. It is wicked. And what we have here is that sort of thing happening. In Israel, there were those who were taking advantage of their positions and of their resources and of their power over against their fellow man. Now, the reason this is a problem is because it is a fundamental rejection of the Imago Dei, that we are made in the image of God. And so when you see people who are struggling, we don't see them as a people we can take advantage of or profit from. Rather, we, we are called to serve our fellow man. So what is happening as a result of this economic depression is, is two things. First of all, uh, men and women are forced into slavery. We, we saw that actually in chapter or verse 5, didn't we? Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Notice what that language is in Mago Day. That is that my sons are no different than their sons. Our children are no different than, than their children. My wife is no different than their wife, right? There is equality before the Creator, Right? That is crucial to understanding everything that happens in the rest of this chapter. Yet, though that is true, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. 
And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. This is typical back uh, at this time that if you had debts you could not pay, uh, the way you would pay those debts is sell yourself and your family into uh, slavery. Uh, and, and so you would work to pay off those debts. Now, as you can imagine, uh, being a slave does not pay very well. And so you were uh, voluntarily and really forced by the law to go into a system of oppression that would last for a very long time. It isn't just you. It would be your family would suffer as well. Not only that, but, 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 but perhaps one of the main causes of this is that schemers were allowing people to borrow money. And we saw the reference to uh, mortgaging their homes in, in the first few verses. But they would allow people to borrow money and then charge high interest rates. Go down to verse 7. We, we can see this. Uh, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest against uh, each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against him. Go down to verse 10. It's, it's repeated. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Uh, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Exacting of interest. And this is one of the things that uh, might come to the surprise of uh, many believers. The Bible is not a fan of charging interest towards uh, fellow believers. Um, Again, I think this is surprising because this is really how our economic system works. And I have no, no I, I'm not making any sort of economic political statement here. Just looking at the Bible for what it says. But you can see how this can easily be abused. You say, okay, you really need this amount of money from me just to feed your family. Well, then you are so desperate, I can charge you whatever I want. And I call it an investment. And you will have to pay me back for that. And so now I have gained... Uh, an interest literally in your suffering and in your inability to, to pay that. So let me give you just a few Bible verses here. Exodus twenty two twenty five. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. Deuteronomy twenty three nineteen. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. Finally, Proverbs 28.8, and there's other references we can make. Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. I wasn't a fan of this at all. By the way, this is why we as Kentucky Baptists, we have consistently stood against predatory lending companies. One of them came to the church several years ago. This is pre-COVID. This is 15, 20 years ago. And... Um, they, they, they dropped off some, some cups and whatnot. And I remember uh, they gave me the stuff. And I was like, just shocked. Like, do you know who we are? Right? Did you read the sign out front, right? And, and then, then, I, then I wanted to ask, like, who told you to drop these off? Because we're going to have a long conversation with this person, right? You know? And I think I actually reached out to, to the deacons, like, is this normal for y'all, right? You know, it, it just really took me aback. It's, it's like whenever I was a youth pastor, the uh, Jehovah Witnesses stopped by to do some evangelism at, at the church. They, they, they left their material in the uh, mailbox. <laughs> it's like, did you not read the sign out, out, out front? But the problem here with, 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 with such companies and even your, your, your typical banks is, is that they can target the poor. They can target the poor. And as a result, you say, sure, we'll, we'll cash your paycheck, but we want an, an interest of an astronomical amount. This was a major problem during COVID, by the way. People being charged 
50, 60, even 100% interest on loans, they have no job. So they, so they have to have a means to feed their family. And now what you're going to do is, is you still know job. You're going to have to pay back this loan to amount. You, you'll never be able to get out of the debt. And that's the whole point is to never get out of the debt. You've probably found that with your credit cards, hasn't it? You could pay that minimum all you want. And they want you to pay that minimum. They love that minimal payment because you will never get out of debt with that minimum. It doesn't matter how much credit card debt you have. You can tell Dave Ramsey I said that. But you will never get out of it because of such interest. And again, I have no comment to make regarding economic, political. It's just, 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 just what the text says here. But what Nehemiah sees is he, he sees, particularly among leaders of Israel, the elders and the administrators, that they are the ones taking advantage of the poor. This is an economic depression, and you're profiting off of that. There's a certain wickedness there that I think we can understand. So what Nehemiah does is he exhorts Israel to forsake these practices. Notice what he does in verse 6. His first reaction, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. His first response was that of righteous anger. This is exactly what you see Jesus dealing with in the temple. Remember what it is that they are doing is, is it is a targeting of the poor. Oh, you have a, you have a, a Mary has a little lamb, right? You know, and, and that's cute. We love your little lamb, but it's not good enough. Why? Because we said so. Here, we can charge you an, extra, an phenomenal amount of money for this pre-approved lamb. It is the poor who always victimized by that sort of stuff. And how does Jesus respond, much like Nehemiah, with righteous anger? So what Nehemiah does, he, he does a, a radical thing. I think when we see this text, let's not be quick to make economic political connections here. Just allow the text to breathe a little bit. What he does is he forgives all the debts and he resets the economy. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how that works. I don't know. We're going to move on. Now, much of it will come from his own pockets. And he will refuse to assert his legal and, and even ethical right to receive a governor's salary. Look at, uh, uh, we, we saw this in verse 10. Moreover, I, my brothers, my servants are lending them money and grain, right, without interest. Here, here, if this can be a blessing to you, if it's going to help you, I'm going to do that. Then go down to verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah in the 20th year, 22nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. You see that? He has every right to it. There's nothing wrong if he took that. He would not be uh, 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 unethical. He would not be immoral. He has every right to that. But he chooses for the sake of his fellow man. Not to do it. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. There it is. There it is. Remember the, the, how Nehemiah does, constantly shows us how a secular duty is a sacred calling. And you can, you can keep reading there what, what all, all, all that he does is, is that he, he, he risks his own financial well-being for the sake of his neighbor. So we see that, that while he is being attacked from the outside, there, there are enemies on the inside. And many of them he has shared a table with, unaware of what they are doing uh, privately, how they are taking advantage of people. But when he finds out, he responds with righteous anger and action and sacrifice. It doesn't say, well, we can fix this by, by, by someone else doing this, sacrificing their, their, their resources. No, he says, let, let us start here with me. He replaces injustice with charity. 
And then notice what happens uh, really from chapter 7. We could go even to the end of chapter 12. We see that he is a man of prayer. He's a man of calling. He's a man of perseverance. He's a man of justice. Nehemiah is also a man of worship. And obviously we're looking at five or six chapters here, so we can't look at them in any detail. In fact, the reason we skipped Ezra instead are spending time in Nehemiah in our reading is because much of this is there's similar scenes in Ezra. So this was a, an, an easy way for us to, to, to get a taste of Ezra without doing as much flipping. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but there you have it. But in chapter 7, what we see is spiritual renewal. So we've seen economic renewal. We've seen uh, 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 legal renewal, right, the, the, with, with, with the uh, uh, interest rates. And, and now we see a spiritual renewal. These are often related to, to each other, as you might know. And in chapter 7, what it is that, that we, we see is, is a list of the returned exiles. That, that is, you will not be reading that this week. You're welcome. But starting in chapter 8, Ezra stands up and he preaches. This is one of the things that uh, uh, a lot of people ask, you know, why, why, why do Protestants uh, in particular have preaching as very central to, to their worship? Um, you may notice that Baptists have the pulpit in the middle, other denominations may have it to the side. It's because we believe the Bible and the proclamation of the Bible is at the center of worship. Right? And, and so, so where is that in the Bible? Well, it's all over the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But one of the great passages is when Ezra and both Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, the story is that he stands up, Bible open, and the people are attentive. They have not heard from the word of God for 70 years. Right? Here they are, for many of them, perhaps for the first time, unless it's been passed down to them orally. They're hearing the Bible. And then he expounds on it from Genesis to, to at least to Deuteronomy. Now, how would you like to hang out for that sermon? And by the way, it was not a 20-minute sermon. You know, three point, points in a poem. It was hours and hours and hours. They had greater attention span back then. But, but they, they were hungry for, for the word. So, so what, what is it that we can get from Nehemiah about, about biblical worship, right? So just, just a couple points, right? They're not uh, the systematic points to make, just some things that stuck out to me. First of all, we've already hinted at, the Bible was central to their worship. The Bible was central. Look at chapter 8, just to highlight, uh, we'll start in verse 4, why not? No, let's go back to verse 3, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's the summer, state workers, you're off tomorrow anyways. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, in the, from the early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. <laughs> I've, that would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'm making jokes. Verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, a pulpit, basically. Right? You, you, you can look at, in, in Pioneer, Kentucky, you're going to have something very similar with the Great Revival, similar setting here. And beside him stood, um, I'm trying to count the T's, Mattithiah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mashael, Malkijah, and Hashum, oh goodness, Hashbadana, Zechariah, I can do that one, and Meshulam on his left hand. Notice this, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was above all the people. As he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Notice they did it without fog machines. 
what was sufficient, and I'm not against fog machines in some settings, you know, if you're in the mood for fog, I guess. But, 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 but here, what is essential is that the word of God was sufficient when preached, when believed, when read by the people of God, because, get this, it is the actual words of God. And the people grasp that. We're not hearing from an ancient tale. What we're hearing is God's will and God's word. He still speaks. Here are the people. God has been silent for so long. Here is a guy called by God to a sacred calling like Nehemiah, stands up and says, thus says the Lord, and they believe it is thus says the Lord. And the people are not sitting in padded pews. Nothing wrong with that. They are standing in awe with hands lifted up because what else are you going to do in such a moment like that? In awe, God is speaking to us. We had better listen. The Bible was, was central to their worship. Notice, secondly, fellowship was essential to the worship. We don't have time to, to get into all of this, but you come into the chapter 8 and on into chapter 9, you see that the first day of this was considered holy. They were not to grieve. They were not allowed to grieve. They were required to rejoice. I've never put those two together. That when the day is holy, that is not an appropriate time to grieve. But it is an appropriate time to rejoice. We, we just sang, uh, to God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. who yielded his life in atonement for sin. You know who wrote that? Do you, do you read the, the author thing? I'm, I'm nerdy. I like that sort of stuff. Fanny Crosby, blind from a very young age. And she sings a song about, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Like making her blind. So, so, so it begins that this day is holy. You will not grieve. There will be a time for them to grieve, particularly when they repent publicly. They will also reinstate the Feast of Booths um, in connection with, with their, you know, they're, they're, they're returning and, and recovering what has been lost in their traditions. Thirdly, their confession was public. Now, you can ignore this because we're Baptists and, and we're American Baptists at that, so uh, we don't do public confession. Notice chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Now, you remember, they were not to grieve before. Now, they are grieving. Not grieving because um, they, their, their favorite show was canceled on Netflix. They're, they're, they're grieving because... They are the problem. They are the reason that they went into exile. They have rebelled against their God. This is confession. This is repentance. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read from the book the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worship the Lord their God. They are confessing public. After all, think about it. You're reading the Bible, and here's Ezra reading the Bible, and they're thinking, oh, guilty. Keeps reading. Oh, guilty. And with, with, with each pronouncement of guilt is more shame, is, 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 is more greater need of repentance, more sackcloth, more ashes. This is a public act of confession. This is something that we will never do in the American church to our great shame. Whenever Martin Luther was rethinking uh, Catholic theology, it already cut from the Catholic Church. In 1520, he wrote three important treaties. I won't bore you with all of it. But one of them, uh, I, I believe it's the Babylonian captivity of the, of, of the church. I'd read it, you know, I'd recommend it to you. I've got it 
one of my offices somewhere. And in it, he, 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 he articulates, he deals with the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. He begins suggesting there are three ordinances. He'll conclude there's only two. He kind of tricks himself. And the two are, of course, Lord's Supper and Baptism. But at the beginning, he said there was three instituted by the Savior to be practiced publicly by the church. Can you guess what that third one was? It's confession. I don't think Luther was right. I don't think he's wrong. And what's happened is that we've internalized our spiritual journey. Therefore, our confessions aren't real biblical confessions. Let's, let's be honest, right? Oops, my bad, God. I'll try to do better next time. That's not the model that it is that we have here. But you can see a confession was central to their worship. Fourthly, obedience. You can turn to chapter 10 to, to see this. Chapter 10, verse, verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had, have separated themselves from the people of the lands, the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. That phrase, knowledge and understanding, is interesting, but we won't chase that rabbit. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for their sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt, the, the year of Jubilee. Notice what they said there. Is, is their confession led to repentance, which led to obedience. Nothing's changed here, right? This is exactly what, what Jesus requires of us today. Their confession, guilty, leads to repentance, the change and then the sacrificial system was established there because the priests are the ones standing between God and, and man as they make their confession and they make their sacrifice for the people. Thus, there is atonement for their confession and repentance. And out of that comes obedience. We saw where we broke the will of God and the word of God. Now we will obey the word and will of God. It's not all that complicated. It's exactly what it is that you see in the New Testament. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. But we were saved to be God's workmanship, to do good works. How can anyone say that they are justified and yet, as James would say, you can't, can't ignore our brother who is suffering? Don't you see that your faith is made void in such a moment? That is what it is you have here. They choose not to join a team, but to obey the Lord. Finally, Joy, chapter 12, verse 43. Chapter 12. Obviously, we're doing a lot of skipping. They have built the wall. They've dedicated it. Temples going, you know, being built and all that. Chapter 12, verse 43. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy, and the women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. If, if you don't need a, a sermonary education to figure out what is the point of verse 43, do we need to read it again? How many times do you count joy and rejoice? It's like reading the book of Philippians, isn't it? Over and over again. I, I get it. And remember, you've heard me say a thousand times, in Hebrew, the only way you can emphasize is through repetition. It was evening, it was morning the first day. Evening, morning the second day. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They rejoice, they had great joy. They rejoice, they had great joy. 
Right, let me count. Rejoice one, two, rejoice, three, joy, four, five. I was hoping there was seven. That's okay. That's okay. Sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you don't. So that is, that is how worship is carried out here. We say that the Bible is central. Uh, fellowship is, is, is as, as a community of believers in their traditions and, and ordinances and sacraments. Uh, they, they confess publicly, you saw in chapter 9. They obey that which they, can, they confess and repent of, and they live lives of joy. They live lives of joy. Their sorrow was turned into dancing. Seems like we've read and sang that before. Well, let's, let's finish this out. Go back to chapter 9. Chapter 9. I like to read more from chapter 9 because it, it gives a really good history of ancient Israel. Ezra goes way back. But the middle part I like to just to highlight, if you don't mind. Then we can call it a night. Chapter 9, verse 17. Let's go back up to verse 16. And they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey, were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Here it is. So you saw the sin. And remember that, that, that what Ezra is trying to get at is this pattern of behavior you see in your ancestors is still in your heart. By the way, that is still true today, isn't it? You've heard me say before, we humans are very good at changing the external. We are terrible at changing the internal. We can heal a lot of disease, but for some reason we have yet to cure greed, lust, pride. So you look back at all they did, stiff-necked, appointed a leader to turn them back to slavery. Here it is. But you are a God ready to forgive. This is getting good, isn't it? Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounded in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. By the way, can we pause there? Does that verse sound familiar? Slow to anger, abundance of love, and all that stuff. You know what the real genesis of that is? Remember that around the time of the golden calf, Moses goes up and he encounters God. Remember that Moses wants to be in the presence of God. God's like, I don't think you can handle this. So he hides in the cleft of the rock. And what does he discover? Everything you just read there. You're a God of justice. You're a God of mercy. It's the same language is borrowed here. In fact, uh, it's, it's Exodus 34. The, the, I think it's 19 to 20. I could be wrong on the verses. That is the most quoted Bible verse by the Bible in the Bible. It shows up all over the place in the Old and New Testament, going all the way back when Moses encounters the Lord. Verse 18. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had commanded and committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner so he took possession of the land of Sion king of Heshbon and the land of Og king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars 
of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter to possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them their, their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. They captured fortified cities and a rich land. They took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, home, I don't even talk now, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became far, fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Isn't God good? That's the point of Nehemiah. And it took a man who was a security god for a king who became a construction supervisor for them to see it. God is great. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.